In the spring of 2001, I went with a Presbyterian pastor friend of mine. His name was Harry. And uh, we'd been friends for a long time and decided to go to a church conference together. It was a nice conference, and we certainly had a good time at the conference. But that's not what I remember about that trip. The conference was held at a church in Washington, D.C., And because Harry was so excited about all the memorials and monuments in the area and wanted to see them, uh, we took every free hour we had and went to see monuments and memorials and statues and historical sites and cemeteries until I was worn out. Now, we saw the Jefferson and Lincoln memorials. We saw World War II and Korean memorials. We tromped through cemeteries for hours, but for me, perhaps the most impressive memorial or monument was the Vietnam War Memorial. And it wasn't the most impressive because it was the most aesthetically pleasing. In my opinion, it was not. It was the most impressive to me because it was the easiest to access It was the best at participation. You could kind of get into it because etched there on the granite of the Vietnam Wall are the names of 58,156 men and women who died in Vietnam. And so family members and friends could come there and find that name and trace it with their finger or maybe scratch it onto a, a paper And they participate in that way and they remember. And I think that exceptional access and ability to participate makes it a powerful memorial. Later on in this service, we're going to celebrate a different kind of memorial. Just days, actually hours before Jesus died, He instituted a memorial that has been with us for almost 2,000 years now. He knew how short our memories can be. And he left with us what we call the Lord's Supper. We also call it communion. And again, we're going to participate in that together, all of our campuses together at the end of this message. But you know, when there's a piece of worship like that, like communion that we do so often, we ought to pause and ask, do we really know what it means? Do we know the significance of it? And so I want to talk with you for some minutes today about that. We're in Luke chapter 22, and verse 1 reads, Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Now, I don't know if you've been in church all your life or studied the Bible much, or maybe you're brand new to all this, but when I say the word Passover, what comes to your mind? If you've seen that old movie with Charlton Heston, the old, old Ten Commandments movie, which plays around Easter time and Holy Week every year, you probably have seen the Passover depicted. Or if you've read Exodus chapters 11 and 12, you've you've certainly read about the original Passover. But let me just quickly tell you what that was about. And the reason I do this is because it's honestly impossible, impossible to get the full rich meaning of the Lord's Supper, communion, without understanding its antecedents. 
In other words, its roots in the Old Covenant. And so what was all of that about? You see, God's people had been in Egyptian bondage for some 400 years. And life was rough. They were building statues and walls and buildings and monuments for the pharaohs. And life was getting harder and harder as they toiled day by day. And yet, even in their slavery, God was blessing them. But they cried out for freedom. And so if you know this story, you know God raised up a deliverer, Moses by name. And he called him to go and to tell Pharaoh, set my people free. Well, you know that didn't go real well right? Pharaoh was resistant. His heart was hardened. He was rather cynical about the whole idea. He wasn't keen to the idea of just suddenly losing all of this slave labor that he had. And so in order to deal with Pharaoh, God brought a series of 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And they were horrendous. I mean, the land was virtually devastated. And yet Pharaoh's heart was still hard. But then God told Moses, look, I'm going to bring a tenth and final plague, tenth and final plague that will be honestly worse than all the others. Every firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt is going to die as the death angel comes by. But God said through Moses, look, for every Israelite home that's covered by the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the idea of Passover came from. And so the day came for this final horrible plague. It must have been a, a strange night, stranger than anyone had ever seen. There was silence throughout all the land. And the death angel came around and every firstborn was taken. There was death throughout the land and wailing and bitterness. But over every Israelite home where they had put the blood of a sacrificial lamb or goat and put that on the doorframe of the house, they were covered. That was like a seal of protection. That was a sign of salvation for this home. And the death angel did not touch those homes that were covered by the blood. The death angel passed over. Their lives were miraculously spared. And God told the people, look, I want you to observe this. I want you to observe this sacred event, this moment in time. For I brought you with my mighty hand out of Egypt and I passed over and spared you from the wrath that was coming upon the Egyptian firstborn. And so sure enough, that's what they did. God gave them specific instructions and every piece of that Passover meal, which later became known as the Seder meal. Seder means order. Every single piece of it had significance and meaning. And honestly, honestly, we go through our days observing the Lord's Supper, participating in communion, but if we have no knowledge of those roots, of that background, I'm concerned that we don't get the full, rich, robust meaning of what this amazing moment of worship called communion is all about. So today, as we study Luke 22 a bit, 
I want to spend some of our time a little bit more in study mode than usual. So you're going to have to put your study hat on a little bit more than usual today. Concentrate a little bit more. But I want to share with you in a high level some of the key components of that Seder meal. Verse 7 reads, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John. Now, Peter and John were two of his closest associates. They were a part of the 12, but they were a part of an inner circle. And so he really trusts and relies on them. He sends Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. It becomes such a part of the Jewish tradition. Every person within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem was expected to observe the Passover within the city. And everybody outside of that radius had the ambition to one day celebrate the Passover inside the city of Jerusalem. So imagine what that would create. Hundreds of thousands of people are descending on Jerusalem during this Passover time. It's kind of like Saratoga Springs during racing season, to be honest. A relatively small town, but that special town just has hordes of visitors. It is just reeling from all the activity and all the guests that come. It's hard to find a place to stay. And all of that was true during this Passover season as people came from all over to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they ask. And Jesus had prepared everything carefully in advance because he knew he was being watched by spies, as we've already seen, and by religious leaders that were determined to have Jesus arrested, detained, disciplined, and even executed. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now that alone was a strange sign. Men usually carried water or other liquids in skins, containers made of skins. The women were the ones in this culture at this time who carried liquid or water or any other kind of liquid in a jar. So to see a man doing that would immediately alert people, this is unusual. What's going on here? Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. Church history suggests that Jesus might have coordinated this with the mother of John Mark, one of the young disciples of the church. He wanted to enjoy this final dinner, this last supper with his disciples, and he wanted to enjoy it in private with them. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, I want to tell you, that last little phrase is understated. It's pregnant with meeting. Some of you this week, it could be said of you, so she prepared the Thanksgiving meal. So he prepared the Thanksgiving meal. But you know what that means, don't you? You know, that little phrase describes 
hours of work. That means that you planned ahead, you shopped, you bought the turkey or whatever you're eating. You got all the other accessories of that meal, all the side dishes. You got everything you needed, pots, pans ready for that big day of preparation and that's what John and Peter are doing here there was a ton of work that went into all of that oh how I wish we had a video of the Last Supper wow it would be so instructive but since we don't and since few of us are Jewish by ethnicity and few of us have been to very many Seder meals before which is sort of what developed out of this Passover tradition, I want us to just cover a few of these core traditions and I want to point you to the rich symbolism behind them. And then we're just going to wrap up by talking about why this communion that the Lord instituted on this very night of Passover, why it is the greatest memorial ever created. Okay? So that's our game plan. First of all, as I said, Seder means order. So let's walk through. They began with a Kaddush, which is a prayer of blessing. And then they were going to drink from the first cup. There were four cups throughout the evening. And by the way, some traditions have five cups. So if tradition you're familiar with is a little different than what I say, trust me, when you study Seder traditions you will find that there are many variations in details. But these are some of the most commonly practiced ones that I'm mentioning today. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. What did that mean? It was a way of stating God has brought us out to be a distinct and separate people. And brothers and sisters in Christ, what a message that is for us, huh? God wants us to be a set-apart people as well, distinctive in our values and lifestyle. And everybody would drink from that cup of sanctification. Then, a next key component in this order of worship, this Seder meal, would be to go to a place in the room where they would have a ritual purification, a washing of their hands to say, I'm approaching this meal clean and pure and ready. Bible scholars, many of them believe that it was at this time in the Seder that Jesus actually washed the feet of his disciples. Typically, that would have happened earlier when they just arrived. But as you know, they were all bent out of shape about who was the greatest, and they really didn't have servant hearts. So as Jesus will say later in Luke 22, I am among you as one who serves. And he taught clearly to his disciples, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And so Jesus practiced what he preached. He modeled it for them. He girded himself with a towel. And as they were doing the ritual hand washing, I believe that Jesus systematically washed the feet of each one of them. What a humble leader. And then as they returned to recline at the meal... The leader of the Seder, in this case, Jesus, of course, would take some vegetables, often celery, parsley, some kind of herb, and there would be a prayer of thanks that God had provided the harvest. But this is interesting. They would dip that celery or whatever in salt water. 
And it represented the weeping of their slavery in Egypt. It was a poignant reminder to the people. And it was also here reflective of the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Then the leader of the meal would take from the three pieces of unleavened bread or matzah in the middle, would take the middle one of those and break it into two pieces. And the larger of the two broken pieces would be wrapped in a cloth and if there were any children present, and this made it fun for the whole family and the kids would love this, it kept them engaged, the leader would then say, children, now close your eyes, don't peek, don't look. And the leader would have fun and go and take that larger piece, now called the afikoman, and hide it somewhere in the room or in the house. And later, the youngest children are going to search for that afikoman. And they're going to they're find it, and everyone's going to break it, and they're going to eat it together later on. The smaller piece of matzah is put back then with the other pieces. And then in this ceremony, the children would usually ask four key questions. And I'll not recite them all here, but they basically are asking, why are we doing this the way we're doing it? And then the answers would come. The answers would come, and they would begin to explain to the children, and what a great way to pass on your faith, huh? What a great way to give some deep roots and tradition to the family. They would talk to them about what God did in the original Passover and how he brought them out with a mighty hand. And they would talk about the symbolism of every one of these things that are on the plate and on the table and what all of them mean. And then they would recount the 10 plagues. And what they would do is take now the second cup called the cup of deliverance, and take often their little finger and dip it in the wine of the second cup of deliverance and then let a drop drip on the plate. Plague number one, water to blood. Plague two, frogs. Three, gnats, flies. Plague on the cattle, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and finally, death of the firstborn, and they would be reminded how through God's amazing grace they were spared from them all. And so children are in the room and they're wide-eyed and they're drinking all this in and they're learning the rich history of their people. And the adults in the room are being powerfully reminded of where their faith is rooted in miracles and real acts of God in history. Then, one piece of matzah would be dipped into a bitter mixture of horseradish, so strong, in fact, that it would bring tears to your eyes, and it was called the maror, and it would remind them again of their bitter, bitter tears of slavery. I personally believe it was at that moment as Jesus, the leader of the Seder, was dipping into this maror, this bitter, stringent horseradish, that he said, one of you is going to betray me. Is it I? Is it I? The disciples asked. And Jesus said, the one who dips with me in the dish. And at that moment, Judas Iscariot also dipped into the maror. 
And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Because what Judas Iscariot was about to do was a bitter deed indeed. And it would bring tears to so many. And then, as they went on to the meal, they would dip the matzah in a different substance. As a counterpoint to the harshness of the horseradish, they would dip it in the heroset, which was a combination of apples and dates and honey, all kind of mixed up together with raisins. And as they ate that heroset, it would be a reminder of the mortar. Everything has a meaning. It would remind them of the mortar that they used to build the monuments and the houses and the walls in Egypt. And then they would all drink of the second cup and the sweetness of the heroset would remind them of the sweetness of God's grace that was going to be seen in the Messiah one day. And then they're almost there. Now comes the main part of the meal when they just kind of relax a little more, kick back a little bit more in spirit, and just kind of enjoy the lamb and enjoy more vegetables and more matzah and more greens. I take it that it was during this period of the Seder that the disciples were bickering about who was going to be greatest. And Jesus told Peter during this time, I believe you're going to deny me three times. Well, now we're getting toward the end. Third cup of redemption. First cup, sanctification. Second, deliverance. Third cup, a cup of redemption. And this is where the connection to Christianity becomes stronger than ever. Everybody would fill their cup again. But they wouldn't drink it quite yet. The leader would say, all right now, children, we're pretty much finished with the meal. But where is that afikoman? And often the youngest children, one, two, three, or more of them, would go searching then for the afikoman. And they would squeal, here it is, and bring it back to the leader. But here's the fun part. The leader had to give them something to ransom it back. He had to give them a gift before they would give it back to the leader. And at this point, Jesus took the bread of the afikoman and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, friends, I want you to know, I believe God ordained the symbolism of every bit of this. Jesus' body is like that unleavened bread, bread without yeast. Yeast in the Bible represents sin. Jesus was perfect. He was the innocent son of God. Even Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Even Judas Iscariot, the traitor, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. He was the perfect lamb without defect, and his body was broken for us. And verse 20 says, In the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Remember the third cup? Cup of redemption? I believe that's the cup Jesus took. When he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His death was going to be a redemptive death. So that you and I could be ransomed and bought back. 
from our bondage to sin and set free by his amazing grace. So Jesus and his disciples took the third cup to remember not only Jesus' broken body, but his blood that was shed in redemption for our sins. And finally, the fourth cup is the cup of praise. And Jesus did not partake of the fourth cup. Why did Jesus not drink of the fourth cup? The Jewish people in the Seder would pour the fourth cup and then the leader would tell the story of Elijah, the great prophet who was going to precede the Messiah. In fact, they still do today. They have an empty chair at the Seder in case Elijah happens to stop by. There will be a place. And during a Passover Seder meal today, the door is kept open when they participate in the Seder in case the Messiah comes. They want him to know he'll be welcome. And if Jewish people drink that last cup of praise, and they're not in Jerusalem when they observe this, they will often say, next year in Jerusalem. And this annual Seder gives the Jewish people pride in their nation, their heritage. It gives them family ties and deep roots. But Jesus did not drink that fourth cup because he knew that Elijah had already come. John the Baptist had already come. He was the figurative Elijah that the prophets had spoken of, and he had prepared the way for the Messiah. And of course, Jesus knew that he himself was the Messiah. He had already walked through that open door. So Jesus has says to his disciples, I will not drink again of this cup until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And they all left. Now, friends, I know that's a lie. I went there with fear and trembling. But unless we understand some of those components and the richness of their symbolism and the deep meaning they convey, my opinion, we can never experience the robust meaning of the Lord's Supper. So, with a few minutes that we have left, I want to wrap this up by sharing with you a little acronym that I've used for many years now. I, when I hear a list of things, I often put them in an acronym form so I can remember them. And I would urge you to do the same. And this acronym spells PEAS, P-E-A-S, just like the little green legumes you grow in your garden. That's right, PEAS. And so I want to give you now four features of this greatest memorial of all time. First of all, what we're about to celebrate together is the greatest memorial of all time because of its participation. You can't stand aloof from this. It's not just to be observed, it's to be participated in. And I love the fact that all five senses are involved. You touch it, you smell it, you taste it, you see it, and you hear it as you chew on it. It's something you participate in and you come away edified and strengthened. There's a well-known painting of the Vietnam Wall and a young widow and her little daughter are standing at the wall and they reach up and touch the name of the father, the husband who was killed in action. But in the polished granite of the wall, 
is not the reflection of the mom and daughter. No, it's the reflection of the husband, the father, the soldier who is reaching out his hand to touch theirs. And friends, there's a very real sense in which when we participate in communion and take the bread and the cup, in a very real way, Jesus is mystically among us, touching our lives, ministering deeply to our souls. Jesus said in Matthew, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Secondly, this is the greatest memorial of all time, not just because of the participation it calls for, but because of its endurance. It's permanent. No, it's not made with marble or granite or stone, but God took the most frail of elements, bread and wine, that will spoil in a matter of days, and he prepared an ordinance that's lasted for 2,000 years. Third, it's the greatest memorial of all time because of its availability. You can take this just about anywhere. It's even portable. It's easy to get because of the elements involved. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to participate. You don't have to go to Washington, D.C. It'll go anywhere. You can take it to the hospital. You can take it to someone who's at home. You can take it out in a meadow and share the Lord's Supper together. Some of the most meaningful times of communion I've ever had were certainly not in church buildings or traditional modes. They were in places that you would think, wow, can we really do this here? The answer, yes, we can. Because this is available. It's portable. We can take it anywhere. I've read that when Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon with Neil Armstrong, he stopped and had communion. He wrote, I called back to Houston. Houston, this is Eagle. This is L.M. Pilot speaking. I would like to request a few moments of silence. I would like to invite each person listening in to give thanks in his own individual way. And then Aldrin writes, for me, this meant taking communion. I opened the little plastic packages which contained bread and wine. I poured the wine into the chalice. On the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled gradually up the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food ever eaten there were consecrated elements. Just before I partook, I read, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Buzz Aldrin was grateful at that moment on the moon that this memorial is so available, so portable. You could receive it even there. But finally, this is the greatest memorial of all time because of its significance. We're not remembering here somebody who died and did something good for their country, although that's awesome. We're remembering the Son of God who deliberately shed his blood for the sins of the world. And it's here that when we understand the significance of this, that it moves us. We repent of our sin. We realize it wasn't the Roman soldiers. It wasn't the Jewish religious leaders. 
Nor was it the cowardly disciples that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was me. It was my sins that nailed him to the cross. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. And friends, when we realize how horrendous our sins are, and that Jesus was willing to go to the cross so that my sins and yours could be forgiven, we partake of communion with a whole new level of gratitude and thankfulness. And I pray That today, in just a few moments, when we celebrate this together, that you will come with that level of gratitude. Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're making a bold declaration when we receive communion. We're saying, I believe that the one who delivered his people so many centuries ago and passed over them because of the blood... I believe that his blood has been the atoning sacrifice for my sins as well. We tip that little cup back and drink of that cup. It's as though we're looking to the sky in anticipation that one day Jesus is going to return and receive us to himself so that where he is, there we may be also. What an amazing memorial and I invite you now to ready your heart in this moment because we're going to receive it together just so everyone knows this is indeed a special moment because all four of our campuses are doing this at exactly the same time we're receiving this together one church just meeting at four different locations I love that so let's enter into this time of communion with an incredible heart of gratitude. Servers, would you come now please and begin to distribute the wafers? Would you come now and just begin to serve the people, distribute the bread, and let's be in an attitude of prayer. If you're our guest, we'd love for you to celebrate this with us. If Jesus is indeed your Savior today, your Lord, if you're looking to him for your salvation, it doesn't matter what member, what church you're a member of. You, you go ahead and join in if you'd like. And let's do this with hearts of amazing gratitude for the one who has given his very lifeblood for us.
Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that's the night that we have studied about today and taken a little peek into some of the rich traditions that Jesus and his disciples, many of those, they would have actually celebrated and followed in that order in that upper room that night. When he took that third cup and when he took that bread, that afikoman, he was elevating it. He was ennobling it to a whole different level of meaning. He was saying there's something new coming here, a new covenant. It's not the old anymore based on the deliverance from Egypt. Now, now, for anyone who has ears to hear, eyes to see, I'm willing to deliver you from your sins. Anyone that the Lord our God is calling. So he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. May we eat together. Thank you for your body broken for us. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Thank you that we can call you our Lord, our Savior, our friend. Amen. Servers, would you go ahead and distribute the cup, please? And as you receive this cup, I want you to just reflect on the goodness of God in your life good God has been to you, even through painful seasons, even through bitter times, just like the Israelites. Sometimes they had a lot of tears fall. Sometimes they went through seasons where they wondered if God was even there. And yet, as they celebrated the Passover Seder, they were reminding themselves of God's amazing faithfulness through it all. Let's remind ourselves of that as we receive the cup and prepare to drink it together.
again, the scriptures, God's word reminds us that in the same way after the supper, and now we know a little more of what that means because there was a third cup after the supper and a fourth, a cup of praise finally. But in this cup of redemption that Jesus took after the supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant. That's so important. No longer the old Passover ritual, no longer just representing the, your deliverance from Egypt. Now I'm doing something new. And every time you take this bread and this cup, you're declaring it. You're declaring my redemption my incredible love for you. He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. May we drink together. Thank you, Lord, that through the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God and His blood that was poured out for us not accidentally but intentionally because of His love for us that we can be forgiven. Oh what a Savior. Oh what a Savior. Thank you that we can enjoy forgiveness of sins and eternal life and fellowship with you and with one another. We are so grateful for the new covenant. The old father was awesome. Oh, the things you did. But the new is even better. And may we never forget it. And every time we celebrate this wonderful moment of worship, may we remember it's new, it's fresh, it's exciting, it's expanding. We can participate in it. It's available to us. It's incredible, it endures. And it's so significant. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Kristen, would you go ahead and team and lead us in worship?